Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, if you're a guest with us this morning, I just particularly want to say welcome to you. We are so glad you are here. Um, my name is Tim Adams. I go by TA here. I'm the associate pastor. Um, Tim Fritzman will be back up here next week, I believe. But I really just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. I would love to meet you after the service. Um, so please come say hi. Um, this morning, we're getting back into the Sermon on the Mount, the series that we've been in for the last, um, really since the new year. Uh, we took a great break last week to celebrate the risen Christ. Uh, he is as alive as much today as he was last week. I hope you are still remembering that and celebrating that this morning. Um, but this morning, we're getting back into the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. If you've got a Bible, you can open up there. We'll get there in just a second. Um, since uh, the beginning of the month, well, about a month ago, uh, we, we've shifted from Matthew 5 into Matthew 6, and we've been looking at, in Matthew 6, a, the way that Jesus is revealing a heart of dependence upon him, and uh, the two previous uh, teachings in Matthew 6 were uh, a dependence in action, talking about our giving and our meeting of needs in the, in the community, in the body, um, and then two weeks ago... Tim taught on dependence and prayer. And this morning, we're carrying that on with dependence and fasting. Uh, and each of these three, giving, praying, and fasting, hinge on Matthew 6, 1, and which says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, this morning, or the... the the idea of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them is addressing the motive of the heart. These are really tough words. I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, as I've looked at giving and prayer and this, as I've studied for fasting, it's been hard. It's, it requires us to take a hard look in the mirror and really examine ourselves. Today's topic is challenging for its own rights, for its own reasons. There, there really is a lack of clarity um, about what is fasting, when you're supposed to do it, how you're supposed to do it within Scripture. Um, it is, there's, there's multiple variations of, of emphasis throughout Scripture. And so um, today what I want to do is we've got to focus on the text, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but I also want my, my goal is to hopefully help shed some light on why we fast, what is it, how do we do it, uh, and those types of things as we go through as well. But when you look at fasting, it's interesting. There, there really is no command in Scripture, per se, that Jesus leaves us with to fast. It shows up in the Mosaic Law uh, on the Day of Atonement that it's instituted as an annual fast uh, to celebrate the Day of Atonement. We see, when you look at... Um, people in the Bible who have fasted, and it plays out like the who's who of the Bible. Um, Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Paul, Jesus, they're all found fasting in Scripture. Many great Christian thinkers throughout church history have talked about fasting and the, the extreme value of it. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Wesley, Edwards, all these guys pour their heart into it and speak wildly um, wildly, speak highly of it. 
But I think the main reason fasting is a difficult topic is it's unique. It can be personal and intimate. It can be corporate as a body. But without a specific command from Jesus, it really leaves the subject open-ended. Very much a challenging discipline for you and I to partake in. What's been interesting is I've known for two or three weeks that this was going to be a topic that I was going to teach on. And so as I've just interacted with folks in our body, I've kind of just brought up the, the, the subject of fasting just to hear kind of what their perception was and how much they know about it. And, you know, a lot of the comments based were rooted in, oh, yeah, I fasted. I did that once back in college. And, you know, it was really cool. It was good. Um, I don't think I met, I, don't, I didn't run into anyone that actively partakes in fasting. And I think that's really uh, a picture of the American church in general is people accept fasting. I think it's good, but I, I don't think a lot of Christians in America are actively participating in fasting. Uh, you look in other places of the world, it's very much more an a intricate part of their weekly routine as a believer. The other interesting thing about fasting is that it's not solely a Christian practice. Almost every world religion has fasting as some part of their beliefs. We could probably talk for a few weeks on the subject. When I was, when I was prepping for this message, I literally came through and I, I wrote down 18 fasting is statements. And I was like, well, here comes an 18-point sermon, right? Uh, I'm not going to do that. Hopefully they'll be spread out through here. But um, there is just a wide variety of emphasis throughout Scripture. But for us this morning, we've got to focus on Matthew 6, 16 through 18, what it means there, and then hopefully a little bit, we'll address a little bit of the rest of it as we go. So let's take a look at Matthew um, 6, 16 through 18. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So just like the first two sections of Matthew 6, Jesus, he addresses giving, praying, and not fasting. He points out the hypocrites and he warns us he challenges us to look at our character and conduct and says, don't do this to be seen by other people. We live in a social media-driven world, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, the app list goes on and on. There are some good things about social media, and there are some really bad things about social media But as I read this text and kept thinking about that phrase, to be seen by other people, um, kept resonating with the idea of social media. So much of social media is a platform to be seen by other people. You know, whether it's the good, the bad, the overly critical, the fake. You know, we all have friends on Facebook that present their perfect lives, right? We also have all those friends. These are the friends I love that that also kind of fall into the category of, hey, just keeping it real. Like, (laughs) here's us. This is us. Um, But nowhere else do we have the ability to control and dictate how other people see us as we do on social media. We can hide behind 
the technology wall. Whether it's the perfect Easter family photo or the perfectly positioned and slightly modified selfie, it's amazing to me, Instagram, how many filters does Instagram have that you can choose just to make your picture look just that much better? We have the ability to dictate how others see us. And here's the challenge. Uh, this is the challenge with the Matthew 6 text. This whole concept of being seen by others. Here's where I'm challenged. Who here does not enjoy the praise and admiration for our devotion, for our passion, for our discipline? Okay, my love language is words of affirmation. If you want a lifelong friend, just say something nice about me. <laughs> Few things are more gratifying to you and I than to be made much of for our accomplishments. And this is the craving that infected the religious leaders of the day. So much so that Jesus felt it was necessary to address this idea of addressing hypocrites and them being seen by other people. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has a lot to say concerning scribes and Pharisees. Um, Mark 12, Jesus warns the people that they like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and have places of honor at the feast. And they have a tendency to make really long prayers. How strong is our love for the praise from other people? It's so captivating, is it not? You know, we, we dress for it. Maybe we don't wear a long robe, but we might wear a three-piece suit, guys. We strut our status in the marketplace. We, we put on a port and, hey, we got it all together facade at church. And we, maybe we extend our prayers in order to cover up any insecurity, any, any hurt, any sins in our life. In a lot of ways, our reputation, our self-image is what motivates our actions. We're prone to this because the praise of men is powerful. We want people to like us. We want people to admire us. We want people to speak well of us. The drive, this drive of praise of men distracts us from truly seeking God first in our lives. It distracts us from a hunger for God and God alone. And that's what we're going to see unfold here this morning is that in your fasting depend on a hunger for God. I think in order for us to understand a hunger for God, we've got to understand what fasting is, what's its purpose. Biblical fasting centers on a spiritual purpose by removing something in our lives for a period of time in order to seek God, desire him more than anything else in our life. It's inviting ourselves to be broken before the Lord. We set our devotion, our dependence on him when we fast. It's easy um, to allow non-essential things to take precedent in our lives. Fasting repeatedly forces us to say, do I really hunger for him? Do I long for him? God, what would you have me do in this situation? Maybe it might mean you say, God, have I begun to be content with what you've given me? Have I become content with your gifts? 
Richard Foster uh, wrote a book called Celebration Dif- Discipline. Great book. But he says this about fasting. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. What are your bottom line passions? Because fasting is a benefit to the believer who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Because it allows ourselves to, to be broken before him and examine ourselves, to take that hard look in the mirror by removing something that we know distracts us from the Lord. I think fasting is probably most commonly associated with food. But I want you to hear me say it's not, it doesn't have to just be food. It can be something else that distracts you from the Lord. <coughs> Food is just probably the most direct way that we can experience this because we have a built-in alarm clock that when we fast, our body says, hey, I'm hungry. And in that moment, we can go before the Lord in our brokenness and say, God, I need you. I want you. I'm going to seek after you. But it doesn't have to be just food. It can go beyond food. I think one of the most challenging things that we face in today's culture is our technology. We could, we could fast from screens as a family to commit days of the week to be together as a family without screens in order to focus ourselves on the Lord. John Piper wrote a book called The Hunger for God, and it is fantastic. Um, but he, he talks about this, this idea that, you know, we have to know what it is that's in front of us that distracts us from the Lord. He talks about the fact that what distracts us from our hunger from God. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger, of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven. It's the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video. It's the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land. It's a yoke of oxen. It's a love for your wife. That's Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not the enemies, but his gifts. It's most, it's the, and the most deadly appetites are not the poison for the poison. It's not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of life. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, it's the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. You see, fasting allows us the opportunity to make sure that the simple pleasures in life do not dilute our hunger for God. Jesus says in, in Luke eight fourteen, he says, some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts And he says this, but then they go on their way and they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. He says it again in Mark 4, 19. The desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it it proves unfruitful. You see, the pleasures of life and the desires of other things are not intrinsically evil. They're not vices in our life. These are actually gifts from the Lord. They're your basic meat and potatoes, Coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling and investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercising. 
socializing in First Fridays in the West Bottoms. <laughs> Any of these can be a substitute for a desire for the Lord. They can distract us. And it shouldn't be surprising that some of his greatest gifts are also some of his greatest competitors. Anything can stand in the way, not just evil, not just food, but anything. So engaging in fasting, the act of fasting allows it to be an intensifier for your hunger for God. It's a spiritual desire to seek him and devote yourself to him above anything else. In Matthew 6, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses fasting by saying that if this, re- if this is reward from other people is what you love, then that's what you're going to get. He says they received their reward. Truly I say they received their reward. If you fast in order to receive admiration for others, from others, it's what you're going to get. It aims at the praise of men, and you'll get it, but that's it. There will be no fruit from the Lord in that kind of an effort. Jesus calls them hypocrites because of the motive of their heart. You see, the motive of their heart is supposed to be a heart for the Lord, a hunger for God. And theirs is a motive to say, you know what, I want the praise of men. So that's their first issue. That's the first danger that they've fallen into is that they long for the praise of men. The second is that they do this under the cover and pretense of a love for God. You see, fasting is a Godward act, and they're doing it in order to get the praise of other men. When we become so desperate to be admired and approved by other people, the motive of the heart isn't about God, it's about us. So on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not pointing out that, hey, public fasting is bad. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is a motive of our heart. So the motive at stake is not simply whether you want your acts to be known by others, but why you do them. Is it that God may be glorified or that you may be admired? Fasting to be seen by men, as Jesus means it here, is the self-exalting motive of the heart. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, captures the essence of what it is to hunger after God. Um, He says, the more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven, the more you want all the fullness of God. The more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom to come again. And the more you want the church revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus, the more you want a great awakening in God's re- of God's reality in Kansas City, the more you want to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ penetrate the darkness of all unreached people of the world. The more you want to see false worldviews yield to the force of truth. The more you want to see pain relieved and tears wiped away and death destroyed. The more you long for every wrong to be made right and the justice and grace of God to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. That is a hunger for God. That is a hunger to see God glorified above anything else. We don't fast in order to coerce or merit or earn anything from God. We fast because we, 
and at our roots, we long for Jesus. I love what he said there, to the, what Piper said there about the, the, to we long for the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.19, which says that we, his prayer is that we may know the love of Christ, that we be filled with all the fullness of God. Simply longing and yearning to know more and more of all that God is in our lives. You see, a hunger for God produces an authenticity in our faith. Something real within us. Let me explain it this way. Imagine, imagine I buy a treadmill, right? Surprising. But imagine I buy a treadmill, and three months later, I take it back to Nebraska Furniture Mart, and I go up to the clerk and say, hey, man, this didn't work. I didn't lose a pound. And he goes, well, what's the problem with it? Did it not work properly? And my response is, you know what? I don't know if it works. I never ran on it, but I know I never lost a pound. Seems kind of like an odd illustration, right? Well, let me flip the circumstances a little bit. If we change the circumstances, it suddenly seems to be a little bit more familiar. I've prayed for God to free me from my lust, and I'm still watching pornography. Or I've prayed for years to be able to forgive my dad, and I'm still filled with anger and bitterness. Place whatever statement in there that plagues you. I've prayed for God to relieve me of this, but he hasn't answered my prayer. The treadmill illustration doesn't seem so silly then. If if I don't discipline myself to exercise, I drastically reduce my ability to lose weight. Sure, there's other ways I can do it. But if I don't exercise, I drastically reduce the ability for me to lose weight. Without partaking in some spiritual disciplines like fasting, we drastically reduce our ability to experience our own brokenness in our life and to truly seek the Lord wholeheartedly without being distracted, without being deceived. Without seeking him relentlessly, we might not see much change at all. A hunger for God will drive your authenticity and it will drive an authenticity in your faith. You see, fasting is a treadmill that helps you accomplish a goal. It's about our faith, our relationship with the Lord. If we have confidence in our faith because our faith is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then that is the assurance of our hope, right? I love those scriptures in in the word. If our faith is complete, his, if our faith is in the completed work of Christ, when we fast, we are seeking to become so satisfied in Him in the power of Christ that the allurement for all other things is broken. Tim said this a couple weeks ago when he talked about praying. He said that if if we're praying without a faith, it might seem kind of odd. It might be kind of broken and hard to understand. In the same way, if we're fasting without a faith, we might not understand what's going on. We will most likely be utterly miserable fasting. But putting your faith in the grace of Christ's death and resurrection and turning your life over to him, we're embracing all that God has promised for us. And so when we, when we hunger after him and when we engage in fasting, 
it doesn't matter what's going on around us. All it is is we're just focused on the Lord. We hunger, we long so deeply to know him a little bit better. It's the goodness of the gospel message that spurs our hunger for God. And fasting is an expression of our secure and happy longing in the fullness that we receive in Christ. It satisfies all of our desires. So when we come to this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, it's a little sobering, okay? This is the first time Jesus teaches about this topic. And it's a little sobering that the first statements he makes about it is dealing with the question of our motive, why we do it at all. Certainly, there's a lot of mentions of fasting prior to this in Scripture. Um, Jesus had fasted for 40 days already. But this is the first time he actually speaks of it. And the first time he says it, he says, hey, why are you doing this? Are you doing this for your own self-glorification? Or are you doing this to truly seek me? I think we get the point that, you know, doing something, a motive, whether it's giving, praying, or fasting, so that other people see that, we, we get that that's wrong. But I think there's another layer that we have to peel back about our motives and our relationship with the Lord. Beyond just fasting, we as believers sometimes take the focus off of God and put it on ourselves with our actions. Um, it's a subtle sense that we feel like we're doing the right thing Usually it's unconsciously, but we would begin to put an unhealthy focus on the spiritual acts that we display among other people on a horizontal level. It's about what other people around me are seeing me do. Um, and we don't, we forget that this is something we do before the face of God. Just recently, um, Kelsey and I were at home, we were praying before a meal, and our 18-month-old daughter, Cambry, decided she wanted to pray with us. Of course, it warmed my heart, and it made me really happy, and it was really cute. And so we, we captured this video. I want you to take a look. Can you say, can you say dear Jesus? Amen. Amen. I'm praying. I'm praying. Dear Jesus. Amen. Amen. Whoa. Whoa. You're getting goosebumps right now. I was um, at the perspectives class this past Monday night, and I was there because a good friend of mine was teaching, and he made this point about our adversary. He said that our adversary loves to deceive you. It's actually his chief goal to deceive you. And if he can deceive you, he can keep you from bringing glory to the Lord and all that God has for you in your life. And he said it this way. He said, the power of deceit is how close you come to the truth. The power of deceit is how close you come to the truth. You see, we partake in spiritual acts at a horizontal level, and this this idea creeps into our mind. If my children just see me pray, it will do them good. If, my, if our staff sees me fast, maybe they'll be inspired to fast as well. If my roommate sees me read my Bible, maybe he'll be inspired to read his Bible. If I talk loud enough about being at church on Sunday, maybe someone will ask me about coming to church with me. Are we being deceived by the things that we do at a horizontal level? I'll admit I'm guilty of this. Quickly after shooting that video, of Cambria, I started to share the video with my friends and my family, and 
the motive of my heart was wrong. It was not for the glory of God to praise God about what Camry was start, what, what, what God was growing in my daughter. But it was about me and the pride that I had to say, hey, look what good a job I'm doing. And I wanted to kind of say, hey, you know, come tell me how great a job I'm doing. And instantly I'm in the same spot as the hypocrites, that I'm doing something to be seen by other people. And I want you to hear me say, you know, that is vitally important. Parents, we have a huge role to model and disciple our kids. That, that in itself is not wrong, but the motive of my heart was what was wrong. You know, certainly Jesus lived out very publicly his life in order to teach and model and lead people. I'm not saying spiritual acts at a horizontal level are horribly wrong. What I'm saying is that we got to check the motive of our heart. Is it for God's glory or is it for pra- the praise of men? You see, the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is testing our hearts. He's not regulating our behavior. He's testing our hearts. He's saying that when you fast, we should not have a heart that wants men to take notice of our discipline or admire us. He goes beyond this and he says that we should make some effort in the other direction, namely not to be seen fasting. So he says, fix your hair, wash your face, anoint your head as much as possible. Do something, do fast so that you're not... So you can't be seen fasting. Because this is between me and you. This is intimate and personal. Fasting is an intensely Godward act. Do it towards God, not to the other people around you. You see, to Judaism, a fast was an outward sign of an inward condition. But Jesus is coming in and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Fasting is an inward sign of an inward condition. He's challenging the cultural thought and making fasting a sign of our true Godwardness. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now Godwardness. He's making it about the authenticity of our faith. Jesus is calling for a radical orientation on himself. He's pushing us to have a real, authentic, personal relationship with God. I think I already said this, but if our faith is not authentic, fasting will be utterly miserable to endure. It will all seem very pointless because you know what? You know why? All of the horizontal possibilities of being praised are nullified. Because if we're doing it, we're doing it in secret. All that matters is God, what he, who he is, what he thinks, what he said and what he's going to do. The question for you and I mainly is not whether we fast, but whether in our fast, do we hunger, do we depend on our hunger for God? Is this the nature of your faith? You know, the other thing I found that was really interesting as I studied this idea, the topic of fasting is this. I think only one time in scripture is fasting named without prayer. The only time it's named without prayer is at at the Mosaic Law, at the instituting it at the Day of Atonement. I think everywhere else in scripture, you see the word fasting, you see people praying. They go hand in hand. 
first and foremost, we fast out of a longing for God's name to be known and glorified. I think a second, the second in why we fast is to seek direction from the Lord, which is why praying seems to make so much sense tied right, right next to it. So when we fast, we seek God's direction. We also ask where that is. We pray to him. Do we want our prodigal sons and daughters to come home so that God's name will be glorified? Do we want our church to grow in this community so that God's name is glorified amongst unbelievers in this community? Do we want China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Libya, Syria, do we want those countries to open up their doors to the gospel so that God's name would be made great? Jesus is calling you and I to glorify God. Fasting and prayer are tools for God. There's an interesting passage in in Matthew 9, um, verse 15, where the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus' response to them says, he says this, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. You see, the Old Testament fasting was associated with mourning. It was an expression of brokenheartedness and desperation. It was, a, it was over some sin or danger or some longed-for blessing. It was something that they did when things weren't going their way, right? But that's not the situation for the disciples of Jesus. The Messiah has come, and it is coming, came the bridegroom to a wedding. Like, like sorry, in his coming, it's like a bridegroom at the wedding feast. Jesus says, hey, it's a time for feasting. There will be a time for fasting, but right now it's a time for feasting. Jesus made a tremendous claim for himself here because this is Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 62 that God had pictured himself as the husband of the people of Israel. And so here's Jesus saying, the Son of God, the Messiah, has come and I'm proclaiming to be the bridegroom. With Jesus' coming, a new day had dawned, the kingdom of God had come, and the bridegroom was in their midst. It was a time to to feast, to enjoy him in their midst. And he was clear that he would say, there's going to be a time that I'm gone, and when that happens, then it's a time for fasting. I love that picture um, that Jesus, with his disciples, says, hey, look, soak it up. Soak it up now, feast now, because a time will come when you fast. And I think that's a great picture for us because he leaves us the gift of fasting. He leaves us the gift of his word. And he says, when we fast, you ought to feast on the word of God. In my absence, feast on the word of God. Pray, seek me through my word. Because the word, when we fast, the word is where our spiritual nourishment comes from. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A true hunger of God says says to himself and reminds himself daily, not by bread alone, but by you, Lord. Not by bread alone, but by you, Lord. Every word that comes out of your mouth, God, I will feast. So in our fasting, 
depend on a hunger for God. As we wrap up here, I want, I want to, you know, I've spent most of my time sharing about what is fasting, why we do it, and, and in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But I just want to encourage you to pause for a second and really reflect on this. Consider this. How are you pursuing the Lord today? How are you pursuing the Lord today? Are you hungry for him? Is it time to take some time and fast and pray and feast on the word of God? Fasting can have such a profound impact on you and your personal life. And it can set things in motion for the kingdom of God that, are be, that will just blow your mind. Take a look, if you will, if you go to Acts 13. I want to look at the fasting that took place there and how it changed the course of history. Maybe they knew it, maybe they didn't, I don't really know. But in Acts 13, the believers are all together at the church of Antioch. And 13.2 says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's almost impossible to overstate how critical and world-changing this moment was in Scripture. Before the word from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, set apart Paul and Barnabas, uh, there's not a very clear mission or organization of how they were supposed to take the command in Acts 1.8 to, we were supposed to carry this word from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. There wasn't really a clear plan. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys to Asia Minor, to Greece, to Rome, to Spain. Before this, Paul hadn't written any of his letters. They were all reactionary to his missionary journeys that were launched in this moment. This moment of fasting and prayer resulted in a missions movement that catapulted Christianity to become the dominant world religion of the Roman Empire. So much so that even today, missionaries exist in almost every country in the world sharing the gospel. All in that moment where they sat down together, they hungered and they worshiped and they fast for the Lord. Are you pursuing the Lord today? How are you doing that? I'm not sure what it looks like for you to fast. There isn't clarity on how often, how regular, what it, when, how. But it's pretty clear in Scripture that we're supposed to be actively involved. There are certainly factors that play into this. You know, whether it's health conditions, maybe you're pregnant and food is not an option to skip on, and that's okay. But I think God is pretty clear that he wants us to be active. In your fasting, depend on a hunger for God. Maybe that means as a family, you go screen-free. No TV, no cell phones, no tablets, no computers. And you as a family come together over a meal, and you pray together, you talk about the Lord, you study something together. That is fasting. Maybe it's actually partaking in a food fast. Maybe it's one day a week or one day a month, or maybe it's a three-day fast. But we ought to hunger for the Lord 
we ought to pursue him relentlessly. And who knows how the Lord, how the Spirit is going to talk to you in those moments. And it's going to be exciting. It's something we ought to do. We ought to be together somehow, some way, before the Lord, fasting for his name, longing for him. I went long, and so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dismiss. Um, Would you pray with me? God, we just worship your name this morning. Father, we are grateful for the ways that you interact with us. We are grateful for the tools such as fasting that you leave for us. Lord, wherever we are at um, in our relationship with you, in our faith with you, God, may we take the appropriate step just simply to, to come before you in our brokenness and say, God, we long for you. We hunger for you to be great. We hunger for your name to be glorified in our lives. Father, would you show us what that step is? Lord, we are grateful for your son and his work on the cross and his victory over death. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. There will be people up here to pray if you'd like some prayer.